Philippians chapter 16, the passage that Pastor Dave read a few moments ago in your pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1117, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 24. Today, we conclude this series of messages in part 22. Can you believe we've been at it for 22 weeks? I can. Um, actually, it's been a great experience for me and I hope for you and that you've learned a lot in this series. We have untied some of the naughtiest issues in all of Scripture. We have looked at every controversial issue that I can think of. Sexuality, alcohol, tongues, prophecy, women in ministry, fornication, incest, the cross, the empty tomb, lawsuits, getting drunk at communion, and the resurrection of the dead. And it seems that in these 22 weeks that we have driven over every theological landmine possible, and hopefully we've profited from that and we've learned something and it has stimulated in us interest to search deeper, to be good Bereans and find out the truth of the Word and how it applies uh, to our lives. And uh, so I trust that it has been profitable for you as it has been for Ben and for me. Now, in the closing chapter of this letter, Paul comes to that point where we all do. Do you write letters anymore? I, I suppose most of us write emails. I think the, the art of writing a letter has become a bit old-fashioned and passé. But maybe you remember when you were a child, when you wrote a letter, there would come that point when you knew that you were kind of winding it up and you'd say, well, I have many things to do, so I have to, to close this letter out. And, and that's the point that Paul finds himself and, and shares some parting thoughts, if you will, and speaks about some things kind of tying up uh, loose ends and cinching the sack a bit and speaking about things that are weighing heavily on his heart. Because remember, he not only was a missionary apostle, but in every sense of the word, he was a great pastor, and he cared for these people in Corinth, and he loved them, and he wanted them to see the abundance of Christ at work in their hearts. Now, it's interesting that of all the churches that Paul wrote to in the New Testament that we have record of, that there was no church that had failed as miserably and as badly as the Corinthian church. There was no church that he had to rebuke so sternly as he did the Corinthian church. And yet I am convinced that there is no church that he uh, uh, loved more than the Corinthians. They received his loving counsel and guidance and direction, and hopefully they listened to it, and we are profiting from it uh, even in the 21st century. Now you remember in the last chapter that we looked at over the last three messages, Paul dealt with the most glorious subject matter possible and imaginable. He was talking about the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and every dimension of it and, and what it means to us and our faith and our preaching and our future, a glorious future that waits us. And he, he shares in glowing and fantastic terms a vision of what the future reality will be for those who have trusted in Christ alone and talks about the glorious hope as we saw it last week, the glorious hope that yet awaits us, the completion of God's redeeming work and plan. Now, it's interesting though, as we turn the page from chapter 15 to chapter 16, we turn the page, we read what might appear at first to be a bit of an anti- climax. 
He begins with the words, Now concerning the collection for the saints. I mean, here he is up on the mountaintops talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the glorious hope of Christ returning. And then he turns himself to, uh, from the sound of the trumpet to a call for the offering. I mean, if there's anything that can deaden the service, it's the call for the offering. But that's exactly what Paul does. And as I think about that, isn't that a bit of the character of the Christian life and journey? That the Christian journey that you and I are upon, an authentic journey, the series has been called Get Real, Learning to Live the Christ Life. An authentic journey will have a combination of highs and lows. It will be filled with those mountaintop glorious experiences. And then it will have those times and seasons that feel a bit mundane. Sometimes dynamic and vital and growing. And sometimes the Christian journey just is kind of an everyday variety. And I think there's a reason for that contrast. I think that the reason is because the glorious vision that is ours, the future riches that are ours of this heavenly kingdom that we're bound for, bound for the promised land, yes, bound for the promised land, that that should be the motivation for godly and faithful servant service in the present age. Because we will be so richly blessed in the future. Because we're paying it forward and sending on work where moth and rust doth not corrupt. We should be motivated for godly service in the here and now and be all the more ready to, sh- pardon me, to share in today's earthly riches. And in, in this chapter, we get a glimpse of what I call shirt sleeve Christianity. It's Christianity in action. It's a call to action and service. It's, it's a call to get to the work, to the work, to the work, Paul says. He said, we've been dealing with all these heavy issues, and now it's time to roll up our sleeves and to get busy for the Lord. And as you look at chapter 16, it has a variety of calls to action. In verses 1 through 4, he's talking about a collection for the needy Christians in Jerusalem. In verses 5 through 9, he talks about his future plans to come and minister there. He's busy in other places but he tells them he wants to come and spend some time. Maybe he'll winter over with them and spend these months with them. And then in verses 13, in verse 13, he gives some uh, exhortations to stand strong. And verse 14, to continue on in love. And in verse 16, to obey church authorities. But he begins with what might seem to us a very mundane issue, the offering a collection for the church in Jerusalem. Look at what he says in verses 1 through 4. Now, about the collection for God's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then, when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gifts to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. Now, what you need to understand is that the believers in Jerusalem had come upon hard times. A famine had hit the land, 
And many were starving. Many were uh, struggling in poverty. And added to those economic woes, those kitchen table issues, added to that, the church was beginning to experience great persecution. And nowhere uh, was it greater uh, than in Jerusalem and in Rome. And so there was a program that was instituted that all the other churches, the sister congregations, if you will, decided that we're going to help out our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem and we're going to help them in their time of need. Isn't it a wonderful thing to be a part of the body of Christ, to know that when we can't be there physically and present, that God raises up a company of people to help out and to encourage and to meet the need uh, in so many different ways. I was thinking about that over the last couple of weeks, especially with a dear friend, a member, members of our congregation here, Bob and Donna McDowell. Uh, Donna has uh, been struggling with a great deal of pain and is dealing with uh, some issues related to cancer and has been referred to M.D. Anderson in Houston, Texas. Houston, Texas is a long ways away from Erie, Pennsylvania. And Pastor Dave Snyder, our pastor for congregational care, looked up the directory of Alliance churches across the nation and found several churches in the Houston area. And he called, discovered that the church that was closest to the medical center there, M.D. Anderson, was currently without a pastor. But one of the elders of the church, when Dave explained the situation and that we'd like somebody to look in on Bob and Donna, the elder of the church said, no problem, we've got it under control. You just be assured that we will act in your stead. We will minister to Bob and Donna as if you were there. And indeed, they have done better than we would have done. Uh, they loaned a car to Bob and Donna so they could get back and forth for her uh, chemotherapy and radiation appointments. They've looked in on her, prayed with her, invited to their home for dinner. They've been doing all sorts of things. We don't know those people from Adam. And yet they're part of the body of Christ. And when there's a need, the people of God rise to the occasion and say, let's meet it. Now I said to Dave, as we saw the wonderful ministry that these Elders, without pastoral leadership, were taking and how they were caring for Bob and Donna McDowell. I said, it really convicts me, Dave, that when people call on us for people who are in need here at Hammett or St. Vincent's or at the Regional Cancer Center, and they're far away from home, they're far in some other part of the state, and they need help, it convicts me that we too must rise to the occasion. And what a beautiful picture of the grace and mercy of God at work in His people. And so it was here. A collection was being taken because some of the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem were suffering a great deal. And so they were going to take up an offering. And Paul is laying out some principles for this. Now what's interesting to me is that these principles are not just meant for the believers at Corinth. But he says, just as I told the other Galatian churches, I'm saying to you, so there's some universal principles here. And I just want to go over these principles uh, very quickly with you this morning. He says, first of all, on the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper. So what's the time on the first day of every week? Paul directs the gathering of these funds be accomplished upon a regular basis. More specifically, he says, when you gather to worship on the first day of every week, I want you to take a collection. 
for the church in Jerusalem. And then he says in verse 2, each one of you, it's obvious that this collection was meant to involve believers. Paul was not seeking collections from people who were outside of the church. Rather, he was saying to the believers at Corinth and the churches in Galatia, each one of you within the church, each of you who's been part of the redeemed family of God, you need to gather your resources together on the first day of the week. Each one of you should. And, and he's saying, give out of the blessings that God has poured out on you, the material blessings you enjoy. In verse 2, he, he talks about the funds. He says, set aside and save. The Corinthians were instructed by Paul to set aside and save the money that was being collected for the Corinthian saints. Now, I'm going to veer from my preaching to meddling for a moment. One of the things that concerns me a great deal is that there are many, many followers of Christ who have not gotten into the spiritual habit of setting aside a portion of their income for the work of God. The Old Testament calls it tithing. Giving a portion of the first fruits to the work of God. And I know that that there are some of you who come from traditions where where it's acceptable to put a dollar bill in the plate when it passes by. But a dollar bill does not get at or represent or symbolize the lavish abundance that God has poured out on you. Is that right? There are, this is a, a, a middle income church. I, I would venture a guess that most of the people in this congregation earn more than the average in the greater Erie region, than people in the greater Erie region. And I believe that our giving to the Lord's work, whether it be for the work of the Lord here in this place, to pay for curriculum and ministry and pastor's salaries and outreach and discipleship and light bills and heating bills in the winter, and, and the giving that we give to, to bless uh, the work of missions around the world, people like Steve and Christy Volstad and Tom and Tina uh, Freilich in Uruguay and Chris Adams in North Africa and others, that all of this should be in proportion to that which God has prospered us. You know what? God has prospered me and I know He has prospered many of you. And the object of our giving is to give in proportion to the way God has prospered us not to be content with just putting a dollar bill in the offering plate. Put aside and save an amount as God has prospered you. No specific percentage is demanded in this offering. Instead, we are to give as God has prospered. And this kind of giving is not confined to the New Testament alone. The Old Testament Scriptures lay out the principles for this kind of giving in Proverbs chapter 3. It says, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all of your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Now, I've preached stewardship messages before. I'm not going to repeat all of that. We don't have time this morning. But I want to say to you that if you have not discovered the joy that comes by being a faithful steward over that which God has placed in your hands, you are really missing out. I can't believe 
how from the time I was a little boy, when my father taught me to tithe a, a tenth of my one dime allowance, every week I would take a penny to church. And when it was increased to 25, my allowance was increased to 25 cents, I took my father rounded up from two and a half to three. I took three pennies. And when I got a dollar, I thought it was rich as an, an eight-year-old. When I got a dollar a week, I took a dime. And I got into that habit. And I'm so glad I got into that habit. And I've carried it through as I've been married and throughout raising three kids and putting them through college and all the rest. Yes, there are lots of bills. There's lots of expensive expenses. It gets very costly to live. But I'm telling you, if you have not discovered the joy of giving out of the first fruits, you are missing out in the Christian life. And I would encourage you to take a risk. The principle of giving recognizes that all that we have and all these blessings come from the hand of a gracious God. We don't deserve any of it. We are not worthy, but He has graciously given to us. There's a Jewish proverb that says, God must love the poor because He made so many of them. The truth is that He gives riches to certain believers so that they can use their wealth to help those in time of need. And at this point, you might be thinking to yourself, well, that lets me off the hook. I'm not rich. However, I want to say to you, if you have more than another Christian brother or sister who is in need, if you have more than another Christian brother or sister who is in need, then you are instructed to share in your prosperity with that sister, that brother, according to the amount the Lord has prospered you. On the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside and save as he may prosper and give it for the work of the Lord. Now, after all of that address on the offering in verses 5 through 8, he talks about his planned visit. In verses 10 through 11, he speaks to the church about their care of Timothy. And then in verse 12, he speaks a few words about the young preacher, Apollos. And then in verses 13 to 14, which is where we're going to stop in our consideration this morning before we come to the Lord's table, Paul, in these parting thoughts, calls the church to action. Look at what he says in verse 13. He says, Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith, be men of courage, be strong, do everything in love. In these two very short, pithy verses, Paul gives five, number them, five commands. They're all positive in nature. And I'm impressed with these positive commands because they correspond to the negative situations that Paul has been dealing with throughout this entire letter. The first thing he says is, be on your guard. You see, the Corinthians had not turned away from truth to follow false doctrine. Instead, the Corinthian problem was, was this, that they were lax. They were lax in their practice of the faith, and what they needed was a wake-up call. They needed to be called to be careful to keep watch on their spiritual lives. And it seems to me that it's easy for us in our earthbound journey, it's easy to hold fast to correct doctrines, but to slip up 
and to get lax in the actual living out of the Christian faith. You can have right belief that is not matched with right living. And that was the Corinthian problem. They had right belief, but they were, were slipping in their walk with Christ. And all you have to do is to lower your guard for just a moment. Bring the wall down just a bit. Clip the hedge just a wee bit. Let your guard down just for a moment. And it provides an opening for laxity in the spiritual life. You can hear the truth of the word, but you can fail to apply it. I'm sure you've heard the illustration of the frog in the kettle. I've never tried it. I'm not saying you should either. But I'm told that you can sit a frog in a kettle of water and slowly turn up the heat under the kettle until the frog boils alive. He will not jump out of the pan because he sees no immediate danger. And I feel that there are parts of the Christian church today, the fire is being turned up, and we're in the kettle. And the pressure of the world to conform to its ways are constantly there. And some of us have slipped, just as the Corinthians did, we have slipped into spiritual laxity. And the church needs to wake up. We need to redeem the time for the days are evil. Open your eyes and see what's going on in our world. See what's going on in our schools. Look at what's happening in our community. Look at how marriages and families are crumbling. In a society that is so alluring, it is so easy to become sidetracked, to become deadened to the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that's why Paul's message to the Corinthians is one that we need to take hold of ourselves. We need to be on the alert. We need to wake up. Then he says, stand firm in the faith. Be alert, number one. Stand firm in the faith, number two. I like people who are firm, don't you? I like people who are not wishy-washy. I like people who stand for what they believe. I don't like people who float around and vacillate and bounce up and down like a rubber ball. The Corinthians were blowing around in the breeze. And Paul says, you need to stand firm in the faith. You need to drive a stake in this. In fact, the Greek word that he uses there, stand firm, is the Greek word stakeo, which means to drive a stake. Boom, boom. You've rooted it down. You've nailed it down. I'm standing firm. I'm not budging. There are certain things in our walk of faith that we should not be willing to compromise upon. I often tell our staff, that's a hill I'm willing to die on. There are some issues that are peripheral to me. There are some, you know, the color of carpeting doesn't matter to me. In, the, in terms of eternity, it really doesn't matter, you know, some of the things that we decide in ministry. But there are some things about this ministry. They are hills that I will die on. I'll stake my life on it. And you ought to be willing to, too. Stand firm in the faith. Then the third thing he says is, act like men. I like that. They were a bunch of babies. Just a bunch of infantile, immature men and women. And he says, basically, grow up. And every once in a while, a pastor needs to say that to his people. I'm not going to name any names. 
But there are some, some in this flock that need to grow up. You've been feeding on milk. You've been whining and groaning and not experiencing the abundance of Christ. And it's time for you this year now to, to put away infancy and determine I'm going to grow up in the faith. Some of you have been stuck in your walk with God where you are for many, many years. There's no evidence of growth. There's no evidence of joy. There's no evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. It's time for you to grow up. And if that message relates to you, then it does. It's meant for you. Time to grow up. Recognize it. Acknowledge it. Say, I'm sorry I've wasted the time and, 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 and the opportunities, Lord, but now I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to move on. I'm going to get real. I'm going to acknowledge the fact that I need to grow in my walk with you. Let me ask you, what kind of a Christian, what kind of a disciple are you? Are you growing in maturity or are you still sucking your thumb? If you're still in infancy, I would say, as Paul said to the Corinthians, it's time to start acting like men and women. You grow up. And then in verse 13, he says, be strong. It's interesting to me that when you look at the original language here, that really what he says is be strengthened. He doesn't really say be strong. I know the NIV translates it that way, but the, the original language says be strengthened. You know why he doesn't say be strong? Because you can't strengthen yourself. You can't pull yourself up by the bootstrap. That's something that the Lord has to do in you. You need to be strengthened. That's what Paul said to the Ephesians in chapter 6. He said, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Be strengthened, he says. And the Corinthians were not strengthened. They were acting according to their carnal flesh. And whatever their flesh told them to do, that's what they did. And they couldn't handle the flesh. And they were victims of the flesh. But he says, be strengthened by the Lord. And then finally he says in verse 14, do everything in love. And I hope that as we've come through this study of 1 Corinthians that you've seen the imprimatur of love, the, the constant theme of love. And we've looked at chapter 13 where he spent an entire chapter talking about the root of their problem was the lack of love and, and the importance of loving one another and doing everything in love. And, and you know, you can be on your guard, you can wake up, you can grow up, you can stand firm in the faith, you can be strong in the Lord, but if you don't have love, it doesn't mean anything. True godliness, true godliness needs to be bathed with love. I like what John MacArthur says about this, and I'll just quote what, to you what he says. I think it's tremendous. Love complements and balances everything else. It is the beautiful softening principle. It keeps our firmness from becoming hardness, our strength from becoming domineering. It keeps our maturity gentle and considerate. It keeps our right doctrine from becoming obstinate and dogmatism and our right living from becoming smug self-righteousness. 
It was the great poet Carl Sandburg who said of Abraham Lincoln that he was a man of velvet steel. I think that's a lovely image. Velvet steel. Paul is not saying do everything with the accompaniment of love, but he's saying do everything in love, in the very element of love, in the atmosphere, in the environment of love. That's what you should be doing. So when you're on the alert, when you're standing firm in the faith, when you're growing mature in Christ, when you're holding strong to the tenets of the faith, Paul says, make sure you're doing it. Do it all in the cocoon of love. And so with these words, Paul closes out his letter. And it's like he took the pen from his scribe out of the scribe's hand and took it in his own. And in verse 21, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Come, O Lord. The word he uses there is Maranatha. Come, Lord. Maranatha. Even so. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Do you know what the word amen means? So be it. Let it be so. Amen. All these words that I've spoken to you about authentic living, all these words, this counsel, the sometimes the whack-whack on your hand that I've had to speak to you, amen. Let it be so. And may it be so of us today as we follow until that grand and glorious day when we shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye and be with the Lord forever. Let's pray together. Father, as we close this journey of 22 weeks in your word, we thank you for this word that is so aptly spoken to our hearts. For each one of us, there's been a different application for some, Lord, uh, for some of us, we've, we've stepped up in our doctrine and our right belief. For some of us, Lord, we've, we've had to address some issues of application and, and look at some hard things in our own walk with you. Some of us, Lord, have been drowsy and, and sleepy in our walk, and we've needed this wake-up call. We thank you that your word has been planted in our hearts. We trust it will be fertile soil and that your Holy Spirit will water it and bring it to complete fruition. May there be an abundant harvest of spiritual fruit that comes because of the seed of your word planted in our hearts. And pray, Lord Jesus, that we in a real authentic way would walk the good walk of faith, fighting the good fight until Jesus comes. Keep us in your care, and we will give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stay?